This week we begin a little taste of the Sermon on the Mount. I say a little taste because we're going to spend about six weeks uh, during this time in the Sermon on the Mount, and then we're going to come back to it in the summer and pick up the rest of it. And the reason we're spending so much time, as I said last week, the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon ever preached by anybody, anywhere, at any time. It is far greater than anything that ever was preached or ever will be preached. Jesus comes on this earth and he puts together a sermon, a teaching that is so full of grace and truth. It is the most memorized, the most quoted, it's full of the most well-known portions of any sermon ever given. It's simply stunning and it deserves our time and attention. And we want to give it that time and attention and this morning what we have the opportunity to do is we get to hear the opening to this sermon. The sermon which is the greatest teaching ever given on this planet. And we get to hear the opening to it, this foundational truth upon which everything else is built. And that what we're going to talk about this morning is a sermon, a portion of this sermon, for which if we get this right, all other things open up to us. It is not the only thing we need to hear, but it is the most foundational, the most fundamental thing that we need to hear. Jesus came to teach us this truth. Now, it's just one sentence, but I'd like you to see it written on the page. And so if you're willing, would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5? Matthew chapter 5, it's page 785 in the church Bibles. Those are the ones in the rack in front of you. We believe so much that this is God's word. We want every person to be able to have one in their hands. And so if you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's perfectly fine. We'd love for you to take one of those church Bibles and turn to page 785. Or you could look on with a friend. Or if you want, you can just listen. Matthew chapter 5. Now I want you to kind of feel the stage. We're about to look at this amazing teaching. But Jesus has just spent time healing hundreds of people. Nobody has ever done anything like this before. There's been some healings, but this is categorically different. Hundreds of people are lined up with every different possible kind of disease, sickness, spiritual warfare, struggle, pain, stuff that even today we haven't fully cured. And they're lined up, and not only is Jesus healing one person, he is healing person after person after person. Whatever they show up with, he takes care of it. It's stunning. It's jaw-dropping. Nobody has ever even fathomed that someone could do something like this. And so thousands of people have gathered from all over because they've heard the news or they've experienced the healing and they are gathering to think, who is this person? And what is it that he wants to say to us? So you can imagine the expectancy as everyone gathers together and Jesus has them sit down on this mountainside and he's standing there ready to teach them. This person who's done what no one has ever done. 
They've been hearing about him, his birth, the announcement of the angels, the fact that this is the Messiah, the long-awaited savior of the world, God himself in human form. And they're all gathered together waiting, not realizing they're about to hear the greatest sermon ever preached, but expecting this is a word from God. And Jesus opens his mouth and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Of all the truth, of all the things that he could open with, this is Jesus's opening line to the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As I said earlier, this is the foundational truth. This is the fundamental truth. If we don't get this right, if we don't understand this, the rest of the sermon doesn't make any sense. If we do understand and get what Jesus is saying, not only does the rest of the sermon make sense, but the rest of the Bible and the rest of life. This is the statement that Jesus starts with because this is the thing. It's not the only thing we need to know, but it is the fundamental, the foundational thing that we have to get, we have to understand. Now you may think, Well, that's a pretty bold claim. (laughs) To claim one verse is the foundation upon which everything else is going to be built. But Jesus himself makes that very claim in this verse. Verse 3 of chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a shorthand way of talking about Everything that you and I might think would be good about heaven, everything you and I might think would be good about the kingdom of God, and everything that is good about God himself. So whatever you can imagine about heaven and about God, God's mercy, God's justice, God's love, God's provision, anything good you can think about heaven, the sort of the blessings of life without sin, without pain, without struggle, the very best foods to eat, the very most enjoyable friendships and relationships, the sort of opportunities to engage in things without sickness and death, anything you can think of that is good that might be associated with heaven or God. Jesus is saying, the person who is poor in spirit, that is what you get. Everything. That's why I'm saying this is the foundational truth. Not the only thing, but the thing. That if we understand this, if we get this, it opens the doorway to everything. Everything good. Everything that's a blessing. Everything you might associate with heaven, with God, life, eternal life, joy, peace, everything is available to the person who is poor in spirit. Which means it would be really good for us to understand being poor in spirit. 
and that if we've got a goal, our goal ought to be to be poor in spirit. Now, poor in spirit is not a phrase we tend to use. It's actually a rather difficult phrase to explain and a somewhat difficult phrase to grasp. So I'd like you to stick with me. We're going to spend some time trying to explain this phrase because it is of the utmost importance that we understand it. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, fortunately for us, in Luke's gospel, in a different place, Jesus says, blessed are the poor, meaning the materially poor. And it just so happens that being materially poor is actually a helpful way for thinking about what it means to be poor in spirit. And being materially poor is actually easier for us to wrap our minds around. So let's start with sort of an example that might help us begin to get ready to understand what it means to be poor in spirit. So imagine for a moment that you're a college student uh, and that you're in an English class. And in your English class, you've been assigned to uh, be part of a group project. And the leader of your group project has uh, decided that you're going to all meet together at a restaurant to get started working on your project. You didn't have a say in the restaurant. You just simply got assigned. This is where you're going to meet. And imagine now again, you are a poor college student. And so uh, you don't have a car. And so you've got to walk the restaurants a little ways off campus. And so you've got to make arrangements. You're going to walk there. And while you're walking there, you miss dinner in the dorm. But you're going to a restaurant, and so that's a place you can eat. You show up at the restaurant, and immediately when you walk in, you start thinking, mm, this is a little more expensive than I thought it was going to be. And you know that in your wallet, you've got 20 bucks. Okay, that's all you have. And as a college student, you're also in debt. You've taken out debt to go to college. You've got no money. Literally, 20 bucks is all you've got. You don't have a credit card. You've been denied that because you're in debt. You don't have a paycheck coming for another couple of weeks. And you don't know the people well enough that you're eating with to borrow money from anybody. Well, you open up the menu and you look on the list. And immediately your stomach says, the steak. We want the steak. <laughs> and you look at the price. And you're thinking about tax and tip. And you're like, literally... I can't order the steak because I can't pay for it. That's what it means to be materially poor. There's something you might want, but you just can't do it. I don't have the financial resources to get that thing. Now, many of us can actually relate to that feeling. <laughs> you end up ordering the side salad instead. There's also a parallel one, which if you can't relate to that one, you probably can relate to this one, which is, okay, imagine that you're in that exact same situation, except this time in your wallet, you do have a $20 bill. You also have a credit card. Imagine that you have a credit card. So technically, you could order the steak, but as you think about it, you're like, well, I don't have the money in my bank account to pay once the credit card bill comes, and this would just blow my budget. So while technically you could you think, I shouldn't, and therefore I won't. That's what being materially poor, that's an experience we have. Where you simply are in a situation where you're like, I don't 
have the financial resources to make happen what I would want to have happen. Many of us experience this on a regular basis. Maybe you've been at the grocery store recently and thought, I can't, I can't, I can't put all this food in the car because we won't be able to pay for it when we get to the front or it will blow our budget if we do this. Maybe you felt this when you've been out thinking about presents for Christmas and you're like, man, that would be an awesome Christmas present to buy for my child. But then you're like, that would absolutely destroy our monthly budget. We can't do that. Or maybe you've been out looking for an apartment and you find one and you're like, this would be fantastic. And then you sit down and you talk about it. You're like, there is no way we could pull this off. That's what it means to be materially poor. I just don't have the resources to do this thing. I can't, or I really shouldn't, and therefore I won't. That's what it means to be poor. To be poor in spirit is that same thing, but with more than just money. Meaning, if there was some sort of opportunity maybe for you to become a calculus teacher or for you to be a neurosurgeon or for you to be a professional singer or maybe even for you to be the president of the United States. If you look at that thing and you think, but I can't do that. I'm not smart enough. I don't have enough connections. I don't have enough financial resources. I don't have the interpersonal skills to be able to pull that off. I don't have the kind of discipline necessary. I don't have the education to be. Whatever it is, if you look at that thing and think, I can't do it, that's poor in spirit. So poor in spirit, meaning I don't have enough intellectual resources. I don't have enough social resources. I don't have enough material resources. I don't have enough interpersonal resources. I don't have what it takes to make that happen. And even though in theory it'd be great to be a professional singer, or it might be great to be the president, you're like, there's no way I could pull that off. No chance. Or... Maybe technically I could if I tried really, really hard, but I don't feel like God's calling me to that. I don't think that I should do that, and so therefore, I won't. To be poor in spirit is to look at a situation, to look at something and saying, but I can't. Someone else probably could, but I can't. Somebody else probably will, but I won't because I shouldn't. Let me give you an example from real life because it might be easy to see. Now this is actually an example of the opposite of poor in spirit, but sometimes when you see the opposite of something, it can help you recognize what the thing is. This is a real story that comes from 2 Samuel 15, and it's about a man named Absalom who is the son of the ruling king of Israel, David. 2 Samuel 15. In the course of time... Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before his dad, the king, for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that they receive justice. 
Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, because he's a prince, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Absalom is the opposite of poor in spirit. He's what we would describe as rich in spirit. He looks at the kingship and he thinks to himself, that's the steak on the menu, that's what I want. And then he looks at himself and decides, I've got the resources to pull this off. I love how it opens with, Absalom provided for himself. Men and chariots and horses. He's like, I got the resources to do this. I just got to dip into my bank account. And then he looks at the situation and realizes, hey, David is a pretty beloved king. But I could steal their affections. I've got the interpersonal skills to be able to do this. We find out it takes him four years. He spends four years doing this. He knows how to flatter people. He knows how to make them feel important. He looks at himself and he says, I'm a winsome guy. I can pull this off. I'll just embrace them. I'll hug them. I'll try to give them what they want. And so he spends four years. He wants to be king. He sees how to make it happen. He realizes, hey, I got the stuff to make this happen. And then he does it. He's rich in spirit, which is what we would call, he's proud. He sees something, the kingship. He wants it. He looks at the resources he has and says, yep, I deserve to be king. I can make this happen. At no point does he stop and think, actually, man, being a king's really tough. I don't think I'd do a very good job at it. That never enters his mind. At no point does he say, maybe God doesn't want me to be king. And at no point does he say, well, yeah, I probably could become king, but I shouldn't because it's my dad I would be stealing it from. Absalom is rich in spirit. He is what the Bible calls proud or selfish. He thinks that's what I want. And when he takes an assessment of who he, and to be honest, it seems to be an honest assessment. He says, I got the intellectual resources. I got the interpersonal skills. I got the financial resources. And the things I don't have, which is the affections of the people, I can get those. To be poor in spirit is the opposite of that. A poor in spirit person says, unless the Lord builds the house, I'm laboring in vain. This is a waste of time. The poor in spirit person says, apart from Jesus, I can literally do nothing. Now at this point in the sermon, you might be thinking, so wait a second. Is the goal for me to be the kind of person who doesn't do anything? The kind of person who looks at every situation and every opportunity and says, but I can't or I won't on my own. I could never do that. Are you and I supposed to be the kind of people who just sit around and not, nothing, nothing, we do nothing, we accomplish nothing, nothing ever happens for us? We just sit around saying, yeah, everything's too hard for me. I can't, I won't on my own. I'll never be able to do that. I'm not saying that because Jesus says more than this. He says in this verse, blessed are the poor in spirit. We've only talked about what it means to be poor in spirit. 
Jesus is not just giving a lesson on what does it mean to be poor in spirit. He is announcing, blessed are the poor in spirit. Question, what happens to a poor in spirit kind of person according to Matthew 5.3? They're blessed. By whom? God. So consider Absalom's father, David, for a moment. At one point when David is Absalom's age, there too is another king who is reigning in Israel, a man named Saul. And at some point, Saul invites David to become his son-in-law. David's response is, who am I that I should be the son-in-law of the king? That's a poor in spirit response. He's like, I don't have the social connections. I don't come from a big family. I don't come from one of the well-to-do people in Israel. He's like, I am not qualified to be a son-in-law of the king. That's a poor in spirit response. Later on, when the king, Saul, is actually trying to kill David, David finds him in a cave and can run a spear through him and kill him and take the kingship by force from Saul. What was David's response? Who am I that I should raise my hand against the Lord's anointed? This is not something I can't and I won't. That is the wrong thing to do. Later on, after David does become king, God offers to him an everlasting kingship, meaning he says to him, one of your descendants will sit on the throne forever and ever. And David's response, who am I, God, that you would ever offer something like that to me? That's a poor in spirit response. I'm not, he's like, I'm not the kind of person that should have an everlasting kingdom. I'm not the kind of person who should kill the Lord's anointed. I'm not the kind of person who should become the king's son-in-law. But what happened to David? He did become Saul's son-in-law. He did end up as king. And he did end up being given an everlasting kingdom. Because blessed are the poor in spirit. So if you say in a given situation, I can and I will, that's pride. If you say, I can't and I won't on my own, period, that's still not what Jesus is teaching. What Jesus is teaching is, I can't and I won't on my own, but God can and he will. And I just got to wait and see what he's going to do. This is what the Bible calls humility. Humility is not the attitude, I can't and I won't on my own, period. Humility is, I can't and I won't on my own, but God can and he will somehow. It is not enough to say, apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. We also say, with Jesus, I can do all things. All things are possible for those who believe in Jesus. This is the fundamental foundational truth. Let me show you how it applies to various situations in life. Consider just life itself. The person who is proud or rich in spirit 
looks at life and says, I can do this. I can make my life happen. I can figure out my way through life. I can do good things. I can accomplish a lot. I can make my life matter. I can leave a legacy. I can figure this thing out. That person will not receive blessings from God. They may accomplish stuff. I'm not saying they won't. But they will not experience the blessings of the kingdom of heaven. They will not experience the grace that comes from God. The poor in spirit person looks at life and says, I don't have the capability to pull this thing off. I don't have the personality. I don't have the intellectual resources. I don't have the mental stability. I don't have the the friendships. I don't have the things to be able to make life what I would want it to be. I can't even stop my own self from messing up and the mistakes that I've made, I can't go back and undo. I can't save myself from death. I can't rescue myself. I can't make myself, my life worth anything. But God can. God's the author of life. God is the one who sent Jesus to give life. God can make something of this mess. God can forgive me for my sins. God can take this path that I'm on and turn it into something else. That person will experience the fullness of the blessings of God. That person will receive from God eternal life. That person will get what God offers, the love, the joy, the peace, the blessings. That person will experience more than they could ever hope for or imagine. Take the example of parenting. The proud person says, I can do this. I can raise these kids. I can teach them what they're supposed to do. I can figure out what school they're supposed to go to. I can set a hedge around them and protect them from stuff in this world. I can guide them into a career that I think is going to be good for them. I can make sure they find the right friends. I can get them onto the sports team or get them into the drama club or I can get them to do whatever it is they need to do. I can be successful in this. Other people are going to see these kids and they're going to think I did a good job. That person will not experience the blessings of God. The poor in spirit person who looks and says, I must be the worst parent in the history of parenting. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to make this work. How do you pick a school? How do you figure out how to do this stuff? How do you get friends? How do you help people to navigate through this really difficult world? How do you choose a career? How do you help your kids? How do you guide them? How much discipline? How much love? How much are you supposed to do this stuff? The poor in spirit person who looks at this and says, to be honest, I can't pull this off. But God can. He knows these kids. God loves these kids. God knows what he's doing. God's able to guide. God will provide. God will tell us what to do. That person will experience the blessings of God. Or consider sexual temptations. The person who is proud, the person who is rich in spirit, looks at sexual desires that we have and says, I can handle those. I can find things that will cause me to feel fulfilled sexually. I can do what I want. I can make this choice. I can be with that person. I can participate in these things. Or if not, you know what? I can work hard enough to discipline myself and train myself. I'll stop this from happening. I can be able to put accountability in place and filters and I'll make sure that I can do what I need to do with my sexuality. That person 
will not experience the blessings of God in their sexual life. The person who says, who am I to try to figure out what's allowed and what's not allowed? Who am I to make these kinds of decisions? I can't stop these desires even if I tried. What am I supposed to do with this? But God can. He can help me. God can lead me in the right path. God can protect me. God can help me deal with these temptations. God can be with me. That person will experience the blessings of God. The reason why Jesus opens with this statement is because if you and I get this right, it's not all we need to hear, but it is the fundamental foundational thing because anything else that comes our way in the scriptures or in life If we are the kind of people who say, I can't and I won't on my own, but God can and he will, then all the blessings of who God is, all the blessings of heaven, all of the blessings that you could possibly want out of life are now available to you. The proud person who lives life in any area, pick whatever you want, any area, and you say, I can and I will, there'll be no blessings. Or if you say, I can't and I won't on my own, period, also no blessings. But the person who says, in every area of life, I can't and I won't on my own, but God can and somehow he will, that person is blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now at the end of sermons, we often sort of ask the question, so what am I supposed to do to make this happen? That would be an ironic question to ask in this sermon. Because the truth of the matter is, I can't make you into a poor in spirit person. And you can't make yourself into a poor spirit person. There isn't a set of things to give you to do. There isn't some stuff where I can sort of cheer you on. Come on, be a poor spirit person. (laughs) But what I can't do, God can and will. And what you can't do, turn yourself into a poor spirit person. He can and he will if you'll let him. How? Well, what God does to make us poor in spirit people is he puts us in situations where we genuinely can't or shouldn't or won't on our own. He puts us in situations where we're just simply not smart enough for the class that we're in. He puts us in situations where we have a job that is just too stressful for us. He puts us in situations where our marriage gets to the point where like, I can't, I literally can't do this anymore. He puts us in situations where our health is such that I can't solve this problem. I can't fix this. He puts us in relationships where on our own, we simply can't make it. He puts us in scenarios where from a mental health point of view, we can't fix what's going on. This is what we curse God for, but it's actually a kindness from God. He is putting us into situations to help make us poor in spirit. 
Why? Because he wants to shower his blessings on us. This is God taking every single one of us and putting us into situations where all of a sudden we're like, I can't beat that Goliath. I can't handle this. This is too much for me. Now the danger is when we get in those situations, the culture in which we live, the spirit of the age, the stuff that's just resonant in our souls tell us, dig deeper, fight harder, try harder. You can do this. Get up earlier, work harder, make it happen. Don't do anything except go after this thing. The problem is, that's not gonna work. We might accomplish some stuff. We might achieve some things. We might experience some things. But if you want the blessings of God, if you want love and joy and peace, if you want the goodness of God poured out, if you want eternal life, it doesn't come that way. And so the one thing we can do is we can lean into those struggles and realize, oh, wait a minute. Maybe God's given me this strong-willed child because he actually wants to bless both of us. Maybe God's put me in this marriage. Maybe God's assigned me to this job. Maybe God's put me in this school. Maybe God's given me this relationship. Maybe God's asking me to do this thing because he's trying to get me to the end of myself. He's trying to get me to realize I can't and I won't on my own. And he's trying to show how faithful he is in every situation that he can and he will. And so my encouragement to you today, God is trying to make you a poor in spirit person. You and I, just lean into it. Stop fighting against it. Stop trying to make your life happen on your own. Try and stop trying to fix all your problems. Stop trying to solve everything. Stop trying to do stuff on your own. I can't and I won't on my own. But he can and he will. Let's pray together. Father, I can't make these people believe these words. I don't even know if I believe them. But you can and you will. All I can think about is all the other points I should have made or all the other stuff I needed to say. But it's not about me and it's not about them. You are God. You've placed us in situations that we simply can't handle. The service this week, the sermon this week, the situation that we're in, the impossible things. I can't know what everybody's going through in this room. I can't know the people who were supposed to be here but didn't, weren't able to come because of weather or something else. But you can. Lord, I don't know how to help all of us, me personally and this church, grow in being poor in spirit. But we trust that you can. You've brought us all this way. You have done all this stuff. Jesus, we hear your voice. Would you now do what it is that you have spoken that you could do? Make us into those who are poor in spirit and then pour out the blessings of heaven on us. We ask this in your name. Amen.